You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Continuing to preach from the Old Testament text throughout uh, the season of Advent here. So we'll be, lo- we'll be looking again at Isaiah today. Um, but as I was sitting there listening to the, the readings being read and, and heard once again that little line in, in First Peter or Second Peter that I'm so thankful for, um, where, Saint, where Peter talks about the letters that Paul wrote and he says that some parts of it are hard to understand. And as, as, I'm just so thankful that he put that in there. Like, and I can just imagine Peter, this uh, you know, fisherman by trade, trying to make sense of all of Paul's grand theology, and I feel humbled in the same way that, uh, that I struggle sometimes to make sense of everything that he says. Um, I was reading an article this week that was an older article, it was from several years ago, but it was from The Atlantic, and it was about people who have, as part of their job, they have to bring bad news to other people. Um, and it was talking about how difficult that is. It takes a toll on people to have to deliver bad news. So they gave a couple of examples in the article. One of them was, say, a consultant who comes and is helping with downsizing a company, where they're going through and they're meeting and getting to know and evaluating all of these different employees, but they know that at the end of their task, they're going to have to come and tell a number of them, your job doesn't exist anymore, and we're, you're going to have to be laid off. And, or from somebody who, like doctors and, and other medical staff who work in an oncology office, where they're constantly having to tell people, yes, you do, in fact, have cancer. And sometimes with that comes a prognosis where we don't know if we can treat this. We don't know if you'll be able to to be healed from this. And it's just a very difficult and challenging time to be there in those moments. It wasn't included included as an example in the article, but I think that a job description that would definitely fall under that same category is Old Testament prophet. Um, they seem to have to, to, to speak the word, the judgment, the bad news of God. And our passage today from Isaiah 40 st- sounds like it's starting off with good news. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Is pardoned. But of course, you don't speak comfort to somebody who is already doing fine. You speak comfort to somebody in the midst of their struggles, of their trials. And Isaiah is speaking comfort to a people to whom he has just pronounced God's judgment. Jerusalem, Judah, the the kingdom of Judah, the capital of Jerusalem, had just been saved from the Assyrian army. So this was good news that Isaiah got to deliver. This, This army came through, they swept away and took off many people out of the northern kingdom of Israel. They came through and they conquered many cities in Judah, but they got to the capital city, Jerusalem, and this massive army camped outside the walls. And Isaiah said, it's okay. God is going to deliver you. And as they were in their siege, the night before they were going to attack the city, God sent an angel that killed many, many of the, of the soldiers in the army. And so the Sennacherib, the, the king of Assyria, fled and left because he, his army was devastated, not by any warfare, but by plague that had come and swept through them. And then Isaiah got to deliver a little bit more good news before he got to the bad news. He, the, the king Hezekiah, the king of Judah, um, grew ill. And he grew ill where he was afraid he wasn't going to recover. He thought he was going to die. And, and Isaiah said, no, God will deliver you from this too. And sure enough, Hezekiah was restored. 
he got better and, and had more years of his, of his kingdom. But perhaps because he'd been delivered from, from two trials that had come before him, he grew a little bit arrogant. And so this emissaries from this new upstart empire came through um, Babylon, and he thought, well, maybe, we don't know exactly what he was thinking, but perhaps it was, maybe if I make some friends with these folks, that they'll protect me from another wave of the Assyrian empire coming back. But he showed them all of his treasure. He, he led them through all of his treasure. He showed them all the treasure in the temple, all the treasure in the king's storehouse. And Isaiah came in after he'd done this and said, what have you done? I said, I showed them off my treasure. He said, what did you show them? He showed them everything. And he said, well, just so you know, these same people are going to come back and take it all. They're going to be taking all of it. They're going to take away your people and your sons who should be kings on the throne in Jerusalem are instead going to be eunuchs in the land of Babylon. And Isaiah, as far as receiving bad news, I mean, Hezekiah took it pretty well. He actually thought of it as, as good news um, because it wasn't going to happen to him. He's like, at least it'll be in my, in my children's time and not me. I'll, I'll get to have peace. Um, but ultimately, this word of judgment was spoken by God to the people of Israel. And so now in chapter 40, as we step into that, Isaiah is looking forward through the prophetic vision of God and speaking comfort to the people who are going to be carried off into exile. Two verses after he pronounced judgment, he's now pronouncing comfort. And so it raises this question, in my mind at least, is, is God fickle? What's going on? Why do we have judgment in one place and comfort in another, barely separated by a breath? And no, God is not fickle. Comfort and judgment come for the same reason. Because in the garden, humanity believed the lie that God does not love us and we do not need him. And God says, no, that's not true. You need me. And you need me. I love you so much that I will strip away everything else. I will put you under the hand of judgment so that you can come back to me. And you, what you really need, the thing that you need most of all, me, your God, you will find again. But I know that you're tempted to believe this lie, that God doesn't love us and we don't need him. And so as you're going off to judgment, I'm going to make sure that you also know that this is still from me. This is, this is out of my love for you. This is not me casting you off. This is not me, my inability to save you from the next empire that came up. Well, the Assyrians, we got through that, but I can't, I can't save you from the Babylonians as well. This is not that. This is me in my love giving you a time of punishment, but there will also be a time of restoration. Any of you who are parents know that how important this is in discipline. That discipline is not a time where we cut our kids off and say, you are now no longer, I, I'm, I'm putting you away because we just don't like you anymore what you're, because of what you're doing. It's a time of restoration, of, of removal, so that you can think and contemplate and come back and actually be restored into right relationship. And this is so important for us to keep in mind that God speaks comfort to those who are under judgment. Because we are still under judgment as a people. There was another article that I read on Fox News this week um, that happened sometime earlier on in the, in the coronavirus um, 
as, as the pandemic was sort of spreading, and, and it was this article that's saying there's these questions that are arising from people of faith. Is this pandemic God's judgment upon our nation that has abandoned him? And Tim Keller, wise man that he is, um, said neither yes nor no. He said there's really two errors that we make when we ask questions about the judgment of God. And I think that all of us are prone to these two errors at different parts in our life. One error is to look at the specific suffering of individuals and say that must be because of something that they have done. So when we're dealing with something like illness that is spreading through our country, perhaps those who are, have fallen sick, those who are ill, those who have died, it's judgment come upon them because of their, of their specific sin. And Jesus, as he walked through the, the, the streets um, when he was during his ministry, says, no, this is, this is a wrong way to look at things. Not that it's impossible that God brings individual judgment upon us, but when we blanket statement and say all suffering comes from specific judgment, then we're looking at things the wrong way. In John chapter 9, he walked by a blind man, and his disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his father, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, but he is put here so that you can see the glory of God at work. In another instance that Tim Keller mentioned in that, in that article, um, Jesus had a report of a, of a tower that had fallen down, a disaster, a local, a local disaster where many people died as this tower collapsed. And he said, do you think this means that those people were more wicked than, than those who are here? No, that's not what it means. So we're wrong when we look to, judge, to, the, to the suffering around us and we see in this specific retribution for specific sins of individuals. But also, the judgment of, around us, the pandemic, the, the suffering that we go through, is a wake-up call, a moment where we are suffering the consequences of sin. And again, as, as parents, you sometimes find that one of the things that you find when you're, when you're disciplining children is that the best consequences you can give are those that flow naturally out of what they have done. And this is what God has left us to the consequences of sin in our world. And that includes pandemics and illness, things that should not be here if creation was still right, if we were in right relationship with God, and then through us, as the image of God, creation was in right relationship with God, then we wouldn't have such things. The suffering that we have as individuals, whether it's because of chronic pain that we're dealing with, because of broken relationships, all of these things are ultimately the consequences of sin. And if we somehow divorce the consequences of sin from God's presence and judgment, and we're saying again, he's just removed himself from us, and, and therefore that's why these things are happening. We're also not looking at what's going on around us properly. There is judgment of God, and the consequences of sin that we experience, part of that is the judgment of God upon us and upon all of humanity that has rebelled against him. And so God speaks these words of comfort to us, in the midst of this, so that we will understand and see this rightly. It is judgment, but it is not judgment because he has abandoned us, because he's somehow looking for retribution, trying to, to get back to us for what we've done. In fact, if we read through that lens, I think that even in this passage, it's easy to read it through that lens when he says that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I think it's easy to say, okay, he's punished me extra amount. So I've received enough punishment, and now I can finally be free of the consequences. But I think what it's pointing us here is not a, at the severity of our punishment. Instead, it's pointing us to the grandness of our restoration. That the comfort that God speaks to us is, yes, this, punish, this judgment is upon you for a time. 
but you will be restored and the restoration will be greater than the loss. Again, Jesus said something similar when he, he said that everything will be restored. He asked, said, give up everything to follow me. And then in the kingdom to come, you'll get back everything and more in his teaching. Jesus pointed us to that truth. Judgment strips things away, but God's restoration is greater than any loss that we might experience. And this is what gives us hope to, to actually persevere through the judgment of God, through the suffering that we experience as the people of God. It's because we look and we say, God loves me so much that this is intended to draw me back to him. This is intended to point me to him, to point the way to him so that we might know true comfort, have true peace with God. We see this even more dramatically in the next little segment of of Isaiah 40 as it moves into voice 3, where it says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The comfort that they shall receive is God himself coming to them. His presence is not taken away because he's, he's somehow angry and has removed himself forever. His judgment and his restoration is himself. That's what he desires us to have above all things. And the, and the, the passage here points us to look for him coming in the wilderness. In fact, this is a really interesting place where the, um, the Hebrew text and the way that it's translated into the Greek and even quoted in the New Testament, there's a slight difference. And, and so there's a little bit of, we get to look at a sort of both and with how we interpret these things. In the, in the text that you have, if you have the ESV in front of you, it says, a voice cries, colon, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. But in our New Testament reading that we read, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And so which one of these is correct? Yes, um, <laughs> both. And, and what it's looking at here is, is two things, I think. One is there's a sense in which this passage, especially in the Hebrew, is looking back in memory to the presence of God in the wilderness at Sinai. And it's remembering this place where Israel has met God in the past as they, as they wandered in the wilderness, even as they questioned him. Even as they walked, they went under the judgment of God for their lack of faith, and they were cast out for longer wandering in the wilderness. They met God in the wilderness. They found him there, and he was there. And so it's again, prepare the way. God is coming from his holy mountain, and he is going to come to you, even as you are still in exile, even as you are still under God's judgment. But it's also an invitation for us, as we stand under God's judgment, to actually step into the wilderness, to walk in the wilderness and prepare the way. And this is the way that John the Baptist began his ministry. Is he was the voice in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord, calling people to come out into the wilderness. Now here in Colorado, I think that there are issues with how we look at wilderness versus how the scripture talks about wilderness. Because for us, it's just a good place to go, to get away, to sort of step out on, on, on a day because the city is overwhelming. And especially right now when I can't go into perhaps walk around in, in downtown restaurants, but I can go out on hiking trails. My family's been trying to get out on hiking trails every single week as we, as we go out. Um, and uh, our kids are doing pretty good. Um, for, for my eight-year-old, it's got pretty good, pretty good set of, pretty good stamina here. We did a five-mile hike this weekend. And it's just peaceful for us to get out, relax, and to get away. But when God calls his people out to the wilderness to meet him, that's not what he's talking about. 
It's not a pleasant retreat where you can step out, get out there for a day, and then come back whenever you feel like it. The wilderness throughout Scripture is profoundly a place of lack, a place of trial, a place of testing. Think of John the Baptist with his camel hair and eating locusts and honey, walking in the wilderness, denying himself for not just a day, but for long periods of time, the comforts that would be found in the city. Or Jesus, immediately after his baptism, stepping out into the wilderness and being tested by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights with no food. This is what he's talking about in the wilderness, a place of lack. And why does he invite us out into the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord? Why does John the Baptist make that central to his ministry? Because while we are under the judgment of God, where God has to take things away from us that we are refusing to grasp, he's inviting us instead to actually step out and let go of of the things that we hold on to, the things that we look to for comfort apart from him, and instead to walk out into the wilderness to meet him and to prepare the way, to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn away from those things that we look look to for comfort apart from God and say, what I need is God. This is why, you know, at the, at the, one of the trials that Jesus faced when he was in the wilderness was this trial of, of Satan saying, hey, you're hungry. Make bread for yourself out of those stones. You could do it, you know. And Jesus says, yes, I'm hungry, but man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. This is what he's inviting us to to make our way in the wilderness. Is In fact, even in here, it is the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's this idea of the, this, the wilderness is the place where we're going to find the word of the Lord spoken to us. And this is what we need. That's why Advent, as we have a season of hope, is also a season of repentance. That's why we're focusing on that right now, is because we are preparing the way for the Lord. We are stepping out into wilderness. And right at the same time that everything in our culture says grasp onto things, stuff is what's going to make you happy right now. You're having trouble getting through this season, so go buy some more presents. Make Christmas a big deal where you get lots of stuff. Satisfy your heart's desires. And God says, your heart's desire, whether you recognize it or not, is for me. And you will not be satisfied unless you turn to me. If you turn to anything else, it won't work. So come into the wilderness. Set it aside. when you come out of the wilderness, you get a new vision of how things work. The next passage begins, portion of the passage begins in verse 6, where it says, A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty, all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah probably here had the, had the image of what would sometimes happen in, in that part of the, the um, Near East was there were fields that would be green until this hot, dry wind would come through. And within a single day, the grass could go from green, lush grass on the hillsides to brown, dead grass as this dry wind came and carried off all the moisture and it just had nothing left and it, it withered. But Isaiah sees this in a way as a blessing now, after the invitation to the wilderness, because it means that nothing can stand in the way of God. As we have prepared the way of the Lord, so he's speaking to a people who are, who are in exile, 
who are potentially in the kingdom of Babylon, who are looking at the might of the kings around them and saying, can God really truly deliver us? And we have the same thing that happens to us, is that we look at all that's going on around us, and we say, can God really truly deliver us? Are we ever going to get to stop wearing masks? Is our country ever going to come together and not be fighting politically, where we see everything as just division? Will I ever have a restored relationship with that family member? Will I ever get over this suffering, this pain? Will I ever, will God ever come? And we can look then at the frailty of humanity, the short span of our years, while we are under judgment, while we are still in sin, is a blessing. Because our sin can only go so far. Our sin can only take us so far away from God. But God does not tire. God does not end. The word of the Lord stands forever. Kingdoms will fall. Babylon will not stand. But the word of the Lord will stand. This is where we put our hope. And after we have come out of the wilderness, we can see this as the frailty of of life is now a good thing, an invitation for us to recognize again that grasping onto anything less than God is futile. And so we have this question again, will God really come? Will he really come and meet us in this? And Isaiah says, yes, because the word of the Lord will stand forever. It's more trustworthy than what you're seeing around you. It's more trustworthy than the news sources that you're reading. It's more trustworthy than your fears. The word of the Lord stands forever. And of course, this points to Jesus himself come down, the word of God made flesh. This is what we remember, what we wait for, what we hope for, what actually brings us comfort and peace in this sense, in this time of of Advent and, and always, is that we look that God himself came to us as Jesus. And we look and we say, God did come. He did enter into closeness, this close relationship with his people. And our New Testament reading reminds us that he's really not so far. That's not so long ago. In our short, frail minds, we look and say, that's, that's 2,000 years ago. How long is it going to be now? Can I wait till he comes back? It says that's just a twinkling of an eye for God. He's being patient. He's allowing us to sit under judgment so that more can come to repentance so that we can celebrate what God has done for us. And when we do that, when we get this vision of what God has done, then there's another invitation as well. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Our king is here, and he is with us. And it is not just to bring comfort to us. It is not just for our own comfort. It's so that we can pronounce and stand up on the hills and proclaim the good news to any who will hear. 
there's a, have you ever been in a room of people where there's, there's sort of so much noise and you're trying to get a room of people to be quiet? And if you don't have a microphone, um, one of the things that people will happen in a large room um, is that sometimes they'll try to yell loudly to try to get everybody to be quiet. And if people are in the midst of what's going on, if they're distracted, that oftentimes doesn't work. No matter how loud you yell, people will just keep on going. Nathan faced this a couple weeks ago. Um, so we switched to just starting with music because he was trying to tell people, hey, welcome, and it just, his voice was lost in the crowd. The volume wasn't high enough. I've been in places where instead what somebody did is something quietly said, if, if you can hear the sound of my voice, clap twice. If you hear the sound of my voice, clap twice. And it spreads out from those who are nearby, they hear, and then suddenly it kind of moves away and away from that initial voice that is, that is cried out. And so that the word spreads and, and the room quiets down faster with that quiet voice spoken than it does with the loud proclamation. Now we are to make joyful proclamations of the joy of God, but he invites us to be part of those people who hear the sound of his voice. And now we clap twice. And then again and again and again because we're celebrating what God has done for us. And we are hoping that the joy that we experience, the joy of our celebration that we know that God is with us spreads out from here. And people who are in judgment, whether they recognize it or not, people who are under judgment hear the good news that God is with us. He has not abandoned us. He is not angry and turned away in his wrath forever. But he has come in Jesus to make peace for us. Our warfare has ended. Our enmity with God himself has ended because Jesus has come. And in him, we have peace. So let's cling to this truth now in this Advent season and always to remember that God himself has come with us and made peace because we reject the lie of Satan that God does not love us, that God has abandoned us, that we don't need him. And we put ourselves at his feet saying, Lord, I need you. I'll receive what you have for me and know that it will be enough. We can know peace that way. And let us take that good news into the world to those who need to hear the good news that God has made peace with his people. Amen. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.